A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Green and Black's Organic Chocolate, a selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Before we start the episode, I just want to pay tribute to an extraordinary Irish woman who sadly died this week, aged 91. Margaret McCurtain is being remembered all over the country for her academic achievements and her tireless campaigning on social justice issues. She was also an iconic feminist who did so much for women in this country. The tributes were led by President Michael D. Higgins, who joined politicians, academics, feminists and social commentators paying tribute to her this week. He said, we owe her a profound debt of gratitude for her advocacy on the abolition of corporal punishment in schools and for the rights of children with special educational needs. Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald said Margaret McCurtain was a pioneering feminist and historian who challenged traditional history, which all too often ignored women's lives. Margaret McCurtain was born in Cork in 1929 and she joined the Dominican Sisters when she was 21 after finishing a degree in history, Irish and English and and a teaching diploma at University College Cork. And she recalled later that her family was horrified when she told them of her decision to become a nun, as they couldn't believe that someone who had been such a student activist at UCC could think of becoming such a thing. After completing a doctorate in Madrid in 1964, she joined the history department at UCD, where she remained until 1994. And an interesting fact about her is that despite the power of the Catholic Church in Ireland at the time, she refused to submit her lecture notes for then Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid's approval. She lectured in history in UCD, as I said, for 30 years. The Irish Times obituary says that in the late 1960s, she supported students' demands, which she said made her aware of other inequalities, such as the position of women worldwide. This made her determined to write women back into mainstream Irish history, a task for which she received little support from the academic establishment. And I also just wanted to read a little bit of an article written by historian Dermot Ferreter last year to mark the 90th birthday of Margaret McCurtain. He wrote, For my generation, she was Margaret without the nun's habit. For the previous generation, she was Sister Benvenuta in full canonical clothing. For both generations, her office in UCD became a place where secrets could be shared and thus diminished burdens and independence of mind encouraged. I came to appreciate Margaret McCurtain's tenaciousness over 30 years and let me applaud her humanity, humour and brilliant teaching and also her stubbornness, determination and creative subversion. McCurtain's life and work reflect the second wave of the feminist movement in Ireland that emerged in the late 1960s and a reminder that this year marks the 50th anniversary of the announcement of a commission on the status of women. The commission's report was published in 1972 and alongside its many recommendations expressed the aspiration that women would retrieve their own history. And it's clear that Margaret McCurtain was at the forefront of that. So we say goodbye this week to a remarkable woman. And in today's episode, we speak to another remarkable woman. Magella Moynihan was 22 and a member of Angarda Siakona when in 1984 she gave birth to a son, David, who she was forced, like many women of that time, to give up for adoption. That was traumatic enough, but then she was charged by the guards, her own employers, with, and I know this is going to sound weird to people listening who are of a certain younger age, she was charged with having premarital sex with another Garda and a second count of giving birth to a child outside of wedlock. She was seen as having brought disrepute onto the force. She was treated horrifically by that organisation, suffered lifelong trauma at the hands of the guards. And in telling her story, first through a documentary on RTE and this year with her memoir, A Guarded Life, written with Aoife Kelleher, she not only received an apology from the guards, finally, but has also exposed the misogyny that pervaded the guards at that time in Ireland, in which she still believes pervades the Irish police force today. She told me her story, including a harrowing moment when she described having to give up her son, David. I gave birth on the 31st of May. 
And as I've said it in my book, my son was born and like that he was taken. I didn't even get a, didn't even get a chance to look at him, let alone touch him. It's still clearly very difficult for Magella to recount that trauma. And so we're very grateful to have spoken to her. She's nothing short of a hero in the eyes of the women's podcast for speaking about her lived experience and exposing um, the injustices that she suffered. I began by asking Magella Moynihan to take us back to her early life, growing up in an institution in Cork after her mother died when she was still a baby. Okay, um, I was born in 62. And I was a year and a half when my mum died. So then I was put into an institution for 16 and a half years. And the first 11, 12 years were, they were okay. Do you know what I mean? Sister Claire was just a dolt, like, so it was what I knew. And then after that, it was, it was just horrific. I was like a punch bag and, um, I just always felt neglect and I always felt that I wasn't loved and all of that. And of course, that echoed everything that I felt, the way I was being treated. And then when I left St. Joseph's then and I went to Dublin, again, I was lost. I was lost because I was weird in an institution and then I had to come to a home that I didn't know them. And it was very, looking back now, it was extremely difficult for me because I was a very traumatized child anyway. Mm-hmm. And then to come to Dublin and to live with my father and my stepmother, and I didn't want to be there. If you can understand, I wanted to be back in the institution because that was the life that I knew. So it was, it, not that it was safe, but it was, it was stability. Magella, can you tell me a bit about your mum dying and why then they, you were put in an institution? Well, my mum died in the 2nd of January, 64. And to this day, I don't know why I was put into an institution. Um, I believe myself that it was my father couldn't cope. And um, he then decided to put me into the institution. I I never asked him why he put me into the institution. Um, He went to his grave with that. I don't know. Um, and that caused me an awful lot of pain over the years because it was extreme for me. It was the, I just felt I wasn't lovable because if I was, I would have been kept. And all of those feelings that can affect a child and affect her in so many ways, and it affected me tremendously. Like it, it, I had no confidence whatsoever. Because I was always wanting to be loved and I ached that pain to be loved and I wanted my father's love and I wanted my mother's love and of course I couldn't have my mother's love because my mom was gone but I, there, I was always crying, I was always reaching for someone to tell me that I was lovable. I mean those first years in the institution, St. Joseph's, People might think, oh, it must have been hard. You you enjoyed those because you had a good person there acting as a mother figure, Sister Claire, that you, you mentioned there. But then, as you said, when you were 11 or 12, you said that you were used as a punch bag. Can you tell us a bit more about how suddenly that happened and how your life changed for the last five years you were living there? Well, the Sister Agnes came in replace of Sister Claire. And um, looking back now, I would believe that it was hard for her to come in and take over an institution that we, we were reared in with Sister Claire. But she came in and we couldn't stand up for ourselves, no matter what we did or what I did. I'm only speaking for me. What I did, I was beaten. Um, she just had a sudden dislike for me because I was outspoken and I would say, uh, you know, I don't agree with what you're doing and all of this sort of stuff. And of course, being, I suppose to also being brought up there, I suppose I had that sort of a territorial sort of thing. You know, you won't tell me what to do. Sort of stuff. But she was very much, I can say today, she should never have been put in charge of children. Never. Because she had such a temper. And she was, you couldn't speak to her, no matter how, no matter how you tried to reason with her, she wouldn't hear it. And it was violence consistently because it was just her way or no way. Mm. Um, 
I became anorexic then as well because of the suffering there. Um, I, I, I had nobody to speak to because I couldn't go back to people and say I was being beaten. Yes, I was telling Sister Claire and Sister Claire was intervening as much as she could, but she was an elderly nun at that stage. But it was just brutality, brutality, brutality. And um, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Even as I go on in my life now with the age of a woman that I am, I absolutely, I've said it and I've said it again, that industrial schools or any place like that, institutions are no place to bring up children because no basic need of any child is met in an institution. And what we do is we, we, we self-sabotage. We, 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 everything that is done to us, we internalize it because we have no place to, to speak or externalize what we're feeling. So it's very much... An organ it's very much an institution that you're you're just how would I even put it? You're put down and you know that if you speak you're going to get beaten. So the best thing you do is just stop. That's what happened to me in a lot of areas because I couldn't speak my truth. Because if I did, I was going to be beaten. And then then I had my breakdowns because of everything else that happened to me, because I was being silenced for so long. And the same within what happened to me later on in the Garda Shikona. It was silenced, silence, silence. And eventually I just broke. I said, I can't hide this anymore. This is my truth. And this is what's happening in Ireland to young women who did nothing wrong. Well, let's go back to going up to your dads. I mean, did you have any other siblings, Magella? I did. I had four others. And where did they go? When your mum died? They were in the institution as well. And how was their experience? Well, I can't really speak about their experiences, really, but um, I can only speak about my own. It would have impinged on us all differently. Do you know what I mean? It would have affected me much more. I was the youngest going in there at a year and a half. So I never remembered my mother. And that was the hardest thing for me. And then when I realised that I did have a mother, I felt great peace. Because for years, I didn't think I had a mother. Because... You know, it was information wasn't forthcoming where my mom was concerned. And it was, I felt, I felt like an orphan, but I wasn't an orphan, if you understand me. And then to be told, yes, that you did have a mother, but your mother died. I was very, I was very angry with my mom for years for dying because I felt if she didn't die, I would have been brought up at home with her and my father, you know. And it was, um, even to this day, it, it's so hard. It's so hard to, to look back at my life and what I did to myself and the pain I put myself through. You know? mm. and, the, the, and the pain that the nuns put me through, that just horrific, you know, telling me that I was lucky to be there and that I was lucky to get an education and all of this, just constantly putting you down, never building you up, never building your confidence, just knock you, knock you, knock you. And that was for the last five years of the institution. Up to that particular time, anything we did, say music or singing or dancing, we were always like Sister Claire, Sister Claire would always be well done, you're great and all of this. And she built us that way. But mine was shattered for those last five years. You know, it was. <sighs> what, what about your relationship with your siblings then? Did you have, was, did that give any solace? No, I didn't really know them. I didn't, I didn't know them. I, I grew up very much, I know I had four siblings, but I grew up very much on my own. They were, they were always there. Do you know what I'm saying? They were there. They were my sisters. And there was never that bond and that closeness in the institution. And there was never anything done to actually make that possible. We were brought together if there was visitors there. And, you know, if we were actually doing, we'll say, concerts or anything like that, we were brought together. But we were all of such different age groups as well, that there was different groups, you know, within the within the institution. So it was, no, no, I can honestly say that they were my sisters. 
And I felt because they were my sisters that I should love them. I didn't know them. They were there to the best they could have been, but I didn't know them. And what I was craving at that stage was someone to hold me close and tell me how important I was. And I wasn't, that wasn't being met. And it's no reflection on them or no reflection on anybody else. It's just what I craved. As that child that lost everything at such a young age, I craved love. So when you went to your dad's, did your, did your sisters go there as well or was it just you? No, they all went before me. I was the last leaf. You didn't want to go because even though the experience in the, in the industrial school had been awful, it was what you knew. And then you had to go into this uncertain place. So tell me about your life then with your father and your stepmother and your sisters. Well, my sisters had moved on at that stage, sort of. So they had, you know, gone and done their, did their own thing. And where my father was concerned, it was going into a house, as I said, of strangers. And I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be this masculine, big masculine image telling me what to do when I was surrounded by women all my life. And it was very, very hard for me to adapt into that new situation because I felt that he had abandoned me, which he did, I felt. And me is only speaking for me. Um, And I can't understand even now how he wanted me back in that home when he couldn't take me when I was younger. So I had major resentment. I, you know, I didn't know it was a resentment then, but I did have a major resentment. You know, I did have a resentment. Felt, what was wrong with me when I was younger? Why are you taking me now? You know what I mean? That I've got my education and I've all of this got. And, and I, I, I retaliated. I, I, I really did. Not that I was, I wasn't violent towards him or angry showing him direct anger but inside I was extremely angry I I didn't want to be there and I would have preferred to stay in the institution because that's what I knew then to come up to Dublin to be with somebody I didn't know he was my father that was it but I did not have a relationship with my father I did not have a relationship with my father and I never did have a relationship with my father what about your stepmother? My stepmother, she was just amazing. She, like, she was so good to me. Like, she was, I can honestly say I loved my stepmother. I found it hard initially when she came along and all of that. But she did everything she could possibly do to make my life good, you know. And she passed away this year and it, it was so sad. And she was as I said before, she, she I suppose she, she wasn't as she wasn't the woman that, you know, that would hug you and all that sort of stuff. But she'd go and she'd buy you something, you know, and she'd put that there for you and say, you know, this is it. Or she'd have a hot water bottle in your bed at night time and you'd get up in the morning and she'd have a fry done for you and stuff like that. You know, it was her way of telling me, you know, how much she cared. And towards the end of her life, I actually, you know, was with her and um we had a great relationship at the end because she started telling me things, you know, about what happened. And I started opening up to her about St. Joseph's and it was beautiful. It was really lovely. She was a beautiful woman and I'm very blessed to have had her in my life. What was her name? She was Kathleen. I won't go the surname. But it's it's yeah. lovely to hear that you had that because especially at a very difficult time, there was some comfort there in that home. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black. A rich, smooth and truly delicious chocolate experience. Tell me then about uh, what put it into your head to to join the guards. Where did you get that idea? (laughs) I got that idea from when I was in the institution. And it was because of the injustices that I saw on a daily basis. Not only in, in the institution, but in the school as well, with, you know, the way teachers were treating pupils and all of this sort of stuff. So initially I wanted to be a nurse. And then I said, no, the guard is what I can do, because if I'm a guard, I can be the voice for people that haven't got the voice and that I can sit there with them, you know, in listen to them with empathy and compassion and all of this sort of stuff. So I went anyway and I applied for the Gargishir Morning. And it was a job I always wanted. I must say, to be honest with you, it was a job that I, I knew that I could change it. Now, I suppose that was very 
<laughs> and I look back at it now, I'm sort of saying, you know, Michelle, you couldn't have changed as one single person, but I felt that I had a lot to give it. And I went anyway and I applied for it. And I remember when I got the job, um, I was ecstatic. I was absolutely ecstatic because I felt, yeah, now I have a voice. Now the vulnerable can be heard. Now nobody can actually assault them or do anything to them if I'm around. It was like as if that I wanted to take on the world. Do you know that sort of way for justice and the injustices that were out there? I wanted to take that on. It was a big step for a small girl. But anyway, I just, you know, I, I just felt that. And and the guards always, to me, was something that it was, you know, if I always saw them as somebody that you could go to and speak to and you could, you know, you could have some compassion and they'd hear you and they'd do their utmost best, you know, to put it to, to bed and sort it and deal it for you. How wrong I was, you know, and th this is another thing for me. It's, I suppose, my expectations of them, they were so high. And I know when you have expectations of a lot of things, they fall, it falls. But this was shattered. It was shattered beyond belief. It was like it was like an eggshell just falling to the ground. It cracked so quickly. So tell me about the relationship you you started before you got into Templemore. You you'd had you were in a relationship. I was. We were in a relationship and um Tell me about him and how you met him. I met him in the Garda Club and he was he got he he was no, he was a lovely lad and a very good humoured lad and all of this, you know, lad, you know, but, you know, a guy and he was, um, we started dating like you do in the 80s and we went out and we were drinking and going to the air and going there and eventually we started sleeping together. And um, my innocence again, like you can't get pregnant. <laughs> How was the sex education in St. Joseph's? None, zero. <laughs> zero so it was the birds and the bees that was it sort of you know <laughs> um it was um I didn't know like I didn't know how you got pregnant or anything else my total vulnerability you know and absolute innocence but anyway we were going out and then he went to Templemore and of course I had wanted to go to Templemore and um then I got my letter that I had actually been accepted and all of this so I was delighted now we had broke up the relationship before he went to Templemore. Why did it break up Magellan? Ah, we just didn't have the same interest. You know, we just didn't. You know the way you meet people, you meet them for a reason or a season sort of thing. You know, I think I met him for a reason, but it was like, um, and it just, it just died. And then he was in Templemore and then I went to Templemore then in the September. And we were came to it again because it's a lonely place and there's many, many hundreds of people down there. And it was good for me to know somebody there. But sure, look, in hindsight, it was the wrong thing. But look. But did you, like at the time, so you're having a relationship with one of your fellow students in Templemore. Did it feel like this was a bad thing to be doing or something that was wrong or illicit or some, in some way? Of course, yeah. It was frowned upon. And I was called in on many occasions in relation to having a relationship in Templemore and that that I was more interested in my affairs of the heart than I was in, you know, police duties and all of this. Um, it was frowned upon and I was looked upon and, you know, she, you know, this one will not make a good guard because she's more interested in the affairs of the heart. You know, and even the report that was submitted about me when I left Templemore, it was absolutely horrific. Like that was, and I don't even know how we came up with it because I met that man once. You know, so... He spoke to me about the relationship, like, but to come along and say, you know, that I'd cry over anything, like, what was he trying to do? You know, it was, but that, that was his mentality. And, you know, it was, go, go looking back into Templemore in the 1983 and me being down there and, and, and as the vulnerable person that I was going into it anyway, and then being, you know, just, I, I suppose, walking in that gate, I felt six foot seven. I felt, yes, I have done this. I have really made what I want to do. And I went in there. But it was, it, it was like, it was worse than the institution because everything was being watched. Everything. You know, you'd walk across the square. You'd been watched because there was, there was windows everywhere. You know, you couldn't do anything. And of course, then Magella goes off then and gets pregnant, like, which is like, honest to goodness. Like. Tell me about that. Tell me about realising you were pregnant and, and what happened then. Oh. This is 1984, is that right? 83 when you got when you got pregnant, yeah. And it was in, it was in 
I had an inkling in the day of my passing out. When I had known the sort of maybe about a week before the passing out. And the passing out, I had said it to the father of my child. You know, I think I'm pregnant. I haven't got my period in. But it was frowned upon. And then we were actually in Templemore then just for another day. And then we went to Dublin to our stations. And I was in Dublin for a good few weeks. I had an inkling, of course, that I was pregnant and then went to the Well Women's Clinic and was told, yes, you know, the blue line is actually there. You are pregnant, Magella. It was devastating for me because it was, here was I starting off in a career that I loved and I enjoyed Templemore, although I found Templemore difficult. Academically wise, I found it difficult. Um, and up in, then, and that night that I found out that I was pregnant, I I walked up O'Connell Street, up to the bridge, right back down again, down Cahillbrew Street, into Marlborough Street, down Talbot Street, North Earth, North Earth Street, Talbot Street, and down into Store Street Guard Station, and could tell nobody, nobody. And put on my uniform and went out on the beat that night and cried. I was walking up Burrsford Place and just crying and crying. What am I going to do? Who am I going to tell? Again, I was back in that that place that I was in in the orphanage and that isolation and that I had nobody and I didn't tell anybody. There was many people around me, but I didn't trust anybody to tell them that I was pregnant. And within the garden of Chicago, I definitely wasn't going to tell them, you know. So I went for a good few weeks without telling anybody. And then I told my stepmother and um, she was... She was brilliant. She was really brilliant. But she she was disappointed for me, you know. And um, she was the same as everybody that I told her afterwards, you know, Magella, you'd have to adopt and all of this sort of stuff. It was, it was a very lonely place. It was very dark. It was shame, I felt. Um, again, the unlovable, you know, the father of my child at that particular stage didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so he then turned around to me in the January of 84 and said, whatever you do with your life is your business. And whatever I do is my business. And then he walked out. And I still find it hard that he walked out on his unborn child, you know. And he still is. He, and he questioned for many years, was he the father or not? And requested three DNAs and we were willing to go ahead. And it was all just put to bed again. Um the guards and what they did and the treatment that they did to me, it was, um, I don't think I have any words at this stage to describe what it was and the impact that it had on my life, still has on my life. Tell us what happened then, Magella. Well, I notified a female inspector in November of 83 that I was pregnant. And straight away I was told I had discredited the force. And then... That was a big thing for me to take in that I had discredited the Guard of Force. And she then said to me that I would have to go to my district officer and tell my district officer. So I did. I went there and I told him. And again, the first question he asked me, who's the father of the child? Is he a guard? And I said, yes. And I remember him taking out a pen and writing down his name. And I thought, what is the importance of this? Like, why does it matter who's the father of the child? But little did I know that I was in an organisation that needed to know everything about you and your personal life and everything about you. So it, it went from there and I didn't and I wasn't aware that they had started proceedings against me from that day. So I was brought in off the streets then and I was put into an office in Store Street and um, they were lovely. The two men were really nice. They were so good. And... Um, then it was March of 84 that I think I went on maternity leave. And I went and I went to Galway to this, to this lovely, beautiful, beautiful family who totally embraced me, you know, as not as the woman that's pregnant, but as Magella, you know, and we still have a great relationship to this day, which is beautiful, 36 years onwards. And... I was meeting social workers through that process and Cura were very much involved in it. And 
the guards and I was getting, you know, letters from the superintendent and all of this. And it was all mentioned in relation to adoption. What do you want to do? Adoption is the best thing. Your, your child will have a family and all of this. I was so messed up. I didn't know why. But I gave birth on the 31st of May. And as I've said it in my book, my son was born and like that he was taken. I didn't even get a, didn't even get a chance to look at not let alone touch him. And um, it's still so so upsetting, Magella. Memories of that day, and they. I remember when he was taken, and I went back into the ward for other women. There was babies there, and of course, there was no baby beside me. I didn't even realise at that stage that Cura were involved with the hospital for the adoption and all of this. I didn't realise it. Magella, I just, for people who are listening who just don't understand the Ireland of 1984, this is the Ireland where Anne Lovett had, earlier that year, she had died at the Grotto in Longford. She's a young, a teenager who had got pregnant and didn't tell anyone and died giving birth to her her baby who also died uh, under the grotto and then also it was the it was the Ireland of the Kerry babies where Joanne Hayes was treated so despicably um, um, in the story of her children as well people just might not understand that this organization Cura could come along and just you know really without your consent or without you proper properly being involved just take over this situation could you maybe just talk a little bit about that so people can understand you being pregnant was such a almost like a crime that's that's the way it was treated. It was a crime. And Cura, like I in my innocence believed that Cura were there for for me and they were helping me. But they weren't. They weren't there for me. They were there for my baby. That's all they wanted. My well-being didn't come into the picture. They came in and they took over. And they and it was them, it was get this baby, get that baby. So they were telling me earlier on in my pregnancy. Um, we have a family. What do you say? What? Like, I haven't, I didn't say that I wanted my child adopted. So why are you telling me that you've a family already got for him? But they came in and they, they just, they took over. They literally took over because I was an unmarried woman. And they felt that that was, Catholic Ireland was to do that, was to take the children from unmarried mothers and put them into homes and not even think about the mother. And, and yet I believe that they were for me and they weren't. They... So your baby David was taken, Magella, and that was, that was it? There was no... That was, that was it. And then the next day I went up to, um, to see him in the nursery and I wasn't allowed lift him or anything else and again Cura was involved with that as well and it was like for an organisation like Cura to come in and to do what they have done to so many women and so many babies the Catholic Church have an awful lot to answer they really have they've they, they've they've stolen our children they've they took they stole our children and for money that's what it was because they were being paid for this. It was a business. A total business. And it was, it was so wrong. Magella, you kept in touch with the social worker to sort of see what happened to David and how he, how he was, where he was going and all of that. Yeah, I did. And it was, um, I, I, I did. I kept in touch through all the years. I kept in touch. Um, but even going back to the signing of the adoption papers, the finalizing of the adoption papers, I I was I was this stage I had been charged within the Gardaí for. Well, tell me about that because you were. It's just incredible. Again, for people listening, won't just have any concept of it. You were charged with having premarital sex with another Garda and a second count of having given birth to a child outside wedlock. And these were charges that were being brought against you as a 22-year-old woman. That's it. And, and that they, they were. But it, it's, they were the charges that were preferred against me. But I, I feel for me, the most damaging thing of it after was the caution that was actually read after the two charges were preferred. And that was the criminal 
caution that was I was using on a daily basis when I was actually arresting people. And for that to be used on me was, it, it was, it was the dagger that went in so deep into my heart at that stage because it was, I'm not a criminal. I did nothing wrong. You know, at that stage, I didn't have the strength to say that. Now I know I did nothing wrong. But in their eyes, I had discredited the force. I had demoralized the force. Women should not be like that within the bang- within vanguards as we were known then. Um, so what they did, they cast aspersions on me all the time. They kept saying things about me. They just, they reduced me to nothing, to nothing. They, they tore my soul. They, they took everything from me. They took, my baby was taken, number one. They nearly took my life. They nearly did. They took any, any dignity I ever had was stripped by them. My soul was stripped. My confidence was gone. I believed them when they told me, the names they called me, insinuating that I was promiscuous. Everything that they did, I believed. And I'm still, 36 years down the road, still suffering because... Because there was proceedings against the father of David as well, and you then had to be interviewed as part of that um it's sort of at the tribunal. Tell me about that because that was you described it as the worst day of your life, and I'm sorry to put further upset on you, but just maybe can you explain to people what that was what it involved and what happened that day okay i I received a summons that I was to appear at the sworn inquiry and went to Donegal for the sworn inquiry and went in. And I was the first witness on his sworn inquiry. The room was full of men and he had a representative with him. And then there was a sonographer there as well. And from the, from the very start, they stripped me, they stripped me bare. The questions that they asked me, um, have you had sex? since you've had sex with Fenton. Um, you know, why Why did you, when you had sex, did you use a condom? Why did you not use a condom? You know, did you not think that you were going to get pregnant? How come you couldn't get pregnant, that you didn't get pregnant in other times? Was the last person that you had sexual intercourse, or initials, whatever the initials were? Um, all of this, were you trying to hold on to this man? Um, and then when I said I wanted to name my son David, you're not naming him. I said, why are you naming him David? They asked me and I said, the star of David. No, you're not. You're naming him after a past lover. All of this stuff. It was, it was like as if I was that. I was dirt. And that's how I felt. And all these prying eyes of men just prying down on top of me, trying to belittle me and try to abuse me to the extent that they did. It was the worst day of anything that the guards ever did to me. That was the day that I really felt, that's it, I want to die. I can't take any more of this. And the questions, and then they came along and they, the doctor, the first doctor that I met, this one really got me. I had a kidney infection, UTI, and I was prescribed a medication for it. And the doctor was asked, is, you know, she had a UTI and all this. Would this be because of her lifestyle? Like, what were they insinuating? What were they doing? What were they making me out to be? All I had was sex and I got pregnant. One of thousands of women. But because I was a guard, I was put up there and they said, we'll make a show of you. We'll show society that vanguarders cannot get pregnant. And I can tell you to this day, and I say it, they absolutely destroyed my life. They destroyed it. I was told in 1989 I'd never get on at the Garda because of my history. So I was being punished through the whole period of the Garda Shikona because I got pregnant and because I had a child. And they, to this day, 
Right, I got an apology last year. Would I ever have got an apology if I didn't do a documentary? No, I wouldn't. Would I? Never. Magella, we're talking about a misogynistic institution, really, like a, a woman-hating institution. I mean, even, you know, they used to be called Bangarda, like you couldn't be a Garda, you had to be a woman Garda because they were different. I suppose you had to wear skirts more that you didn't, were you, I don't know if you were allowed to wear trousers or? <laughs> we had to wear skirts. <laughs> we had to wear skirts and Cuban heels, which was the square heel. Oh my God, they were just disgusting. The skirts. We, we were supposed to run them, you couldn't. They were. It was a polling uniform for women. It was a polling. We didn't get trousers until the 1990s. That like we used to go out in the winter, frozen, <laughs> scared. And, and, and the thing was, which really made me laugh when I was getting my uniform in Templemore, was the shoes. I said, I'm not wearing them things. Like they were just so old fashioned. They were. And the other day I was walking past and I saw a guard, a female guard. The first thing I did was look down at her shoes. They were gorgeous. They were so comfortable looking. And she had trousers on her. And I thought, hmm, look at the crap that we had endured for you to get these trousers. Do you know what I'm saying? But it was unbelievable. As you yeah. said it, totally, totally women haters. Not to the extent now, I feel, because there's more women officers now than ever was. Has the job changed in relation to women getting pregnant? I don't feel it has. Bullying is still going on within the organisation. I know many, many members has rang me since the documentary and has rang me ever since. And it's still going on. It's still going on. They are, to me, they should be ashamed of what they did to me and are still doing to other members. The story was leaked to Magella in the papers. I, that must have been, how was that at the time? That was in 1985. 1985, that's right, it was 1985. And how I got word of that was I was coming in on duty in the morning and myself and another, another female guard at the time. And the inspector met me at the, at the door of Store Street and said, Magella, come to the office. And I remember it so well. It was the front headlines. And I remember falling to the ground and saying, what else can you do to me? What else? And then Cura rang in relation to the headlines and... The inspector said, it must have been Magella that gave it to the papers. And I thought, what? Like, when I saw that on the papers, I just thought, that's it. You've reached the lowest level that you've reached. I'm not shocked anymore with you. I'm not shocked. And I'm still, I'd never be shocked with the parents of what they've done to me. Never. Never. Magella, why did you stay in the guards, considering all they'd done to you? Financially. And I suppose I stayed there because I didn't have another job. What other job, what other job would I get when eventually they let me go on infirmity of mind? So I, I stayed there because I loved it. I thought I would able, I thought I would have been able to override it. I wasn't. I did the very best I could do in that job. I was a great guard. I was a really good guard. I got on brilliant with the public. I loved the job. I tried to put it behind me of what they did. It couldn't. It kept coming in. It kept coming in the whole time. And I was just having breakdown after breakdowns. And, and then another thing, and I'm going to be, this may sound terrible, but I stayed in the guards too, to show them, you'll not get the better of me. That was it. And that's the defiance that was in me. But eventually they did get the better of me. 15 years on, they did. And and the happiest day was the day I signed the line to get out of it. Really? Absolutely. And even now, I'm ashamed to say I was a member of that organisation that did what they did to women and are doing and doing still to men and women within that organisation. That organisation needs to be cleaned from the top down. And not to believe that we, as women, are second-class citizens within that organisation. Women are equal and fantastic people. And I salute every woman in this country and all over the world because what we have had to put up with in a, in a male-dominating world is absolutely horrific violation and abuse. It's absolutely. And I'm thrilled I could tell my story and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. 
In happier news, you you had another relationship and got married and had a son, Stephen. That was in 1998, I think, you got married. 1997. 97. Um, So was that a bit of a turning point for you in terms of healing? Because you had had all these mental health episodes and breakdowns and you'd been in John of Gods and all of that stuff. So tell me about the kind of slightly turning for the better at that time then, leaving the guards and having a new life in a certain way. It was, for me, leaving the guards, right, was it was the beginning of it. And it was, I, I felt at that stage, well, I can start afresh and, you know, I can start building my life to the way I want it. I'm not going to be dictated to anymore. And then I met this guard sergeant and we got married. Well, Stephen was born before. Stephen was born in 97. I got married in 2001. So when I was pregnant, I was still within the guards and they had told me that if it happened to me again, I was going to be sacked. And I said, I'll never forget it. I was five weeks pregnant when I realized it. And I remember screaming and dancing around the place and was so happy in the whole lot. And I thought, no way am I even going to tell you that I'm pregnant at this stage. So um, Stephen was born anyway. And it even his pregnancy was so different. It was so beautiful. It was so healing for me yet I felt guilt because of the love that I felt for this child and when he was born it was just the light shone Leonard Cohen's song there's a crack there's a crack in everything that's when the light comes in that's exactly when the light hit me and I knew at that stage I knew at that stage that my life was going to get much better because there was peace in my heart there was love for another child. There was a, there was another child there that I was being given the opportunity to mother and love what I always wanted to do. And nobody or nothing was going to come between us. And it was like as if I had my protection shield up the whole time and walked so proudly with my bump. And I put on so much weight. It was, <laughs> couldn't deny how much I pregnant. Now, where the last pregnancy, I think I put on a stone. But this is what I was, I think I put on four stone. I was showing the world, look at me, look at me. It was so powerful. Mm. And it was the whole thing that changed my life. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Beautiful for me to be able to hold my baby, to love my baby, to have nobody tell me what to do. To know that I had the ability to do it and to know that the great mother that I was and still am. And I was denied that with my first son. And I hope that someday that my first son and I will have a relationship that both of us will be content with him. He has his issues. And that's okay, You know, but um, my life from 1997 onwards just took one sort of it, it was like it was like a rainbow it's like oh, and it hit me and I thought this is it now get out now and start doing what you want to do and you know get back into what you'd love to do and all of it and I went back to college and I did everything that I love all that healing work and I started to truly find myself and to realize that the lies I had told myself for so many years about myself were so damaging and when I corrected them, I then could see the light within Magella and the, the person that I was. And I wasn't this flawed person that demoralized a guard of force, or I wasn't this slut that they told me I was, or this promiscuous woman or anything like that. And it's extremely important for me to say that because I brought back and I owned my own power. I brought back my truth and I embraced my truth. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe one thing that they said to me today. Not one. I'm so glad to hear that. Why did you tell your story, Magella? What happened? How did that all happen? It's amazing how it happened. I was actually at a show in the Civil Theatre in Tala. And I'm not sure, is it Standing Alone? I'm not sure of the name of the play, but I was at a play there. <coughs> and there was there was questions and answers from the floor after the play was 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 finished. And um, it was on all about adoption and all that. And it was the first time ever that I stood up and said my story and said that I have been charged. Now, now, where I got the courage to do it, I do not know, but I did it anyway. And that night I met Susan Lohan for the Adoption Alliance and um, we went from there. Now, it took a few years, 
But they were saying to me, this is absolutely horrific violation. This is just, and, and I knew all along it was. But for somebody to hear my story and for someone to believe what I believed for so many years that it was absolutely horrific what they did to me, I felt, yes, yes, I have it. I know what I can do now. So then it was suggested to me a documentary. And the documentary has done so well, thank goodness. And um, and then when the documentary was then, I was then approached about a book. And I was sort of quite reluctant because it's the dark side of the Garda Shikana. That's what I wanted to bring out in the book. Going into my childhood and all that sort of stuff went into my, what I believed happened in my childhood, my stuff in my childhood, nobody else. And we all have different things in our life. It could affect you differently than it affected me. That's it. So when the documentary had been aired and it was getting fantastic reviews and, and everything else, and I was getting many calls from female members in relation in the guards who actually weren't charged but were reprimanded because they were pregnant. Um, I sat with it for about a year and then I said yes. When I was approached then about in relation to the book, I said yes, definitely. Um, the book has just taken the lid off all the shame. It has just wiped it clean. I am a completely different person today than what I was even in June of 2019 when I actually did the documentary. Because the outpour of love and the outpour of anger for what the Garda Shikona did, that people can now see them in their truth and that people can see how they belittled women within their own organisation. And this is the one thing that I've said, is that if they had did this to me, a member of the organisation, what were they doing to the ordinary civilian? Yeah. What did it feel like when the guards apologised to you, Magella, for what happened? I had mixed emotions in relation to it, really, because um, I felt if I hadn't done the documentary, I'd never got the apology. And then when I went up and to headquarters and I met the commissioner and the Minister of Justice, it, for me, it was, I felt I was vindicated at that stage. I felt that, you know, what what they had done, the commissioner had said to me, it should never have been done, Magella. It wasn't a breach of discipline. Um, and I respected him for that. And I, I, I respect the Minister of Justice also for apologising to me. And it has meant a lot to me. It has. That's good. A, a couple of years ago, you mentioned David. Uh, he had uh, your son, David, your first son, had wanted to meet you and you did meet him. And you've described it as the hardest thing you did in your life. Can you tell us about that? I imagine it must have been very difficult. It was extremely difficult. And even, you know, it, like... For a child to be taken, and that's what was happening in my, my circumstances, my child was taken from me. And for this child to come back 27 years later, as I said, the child was taken, the man appeared. It was. When I saw him, I burst out crying. We helped each other. But I... I was hugging a stranger. I was, he, he was mine, but he wasn't. Yeah. Basically, he was the spit of me. I felt so sad for the loss of years. That were, that were taken from me because I was an Irish woman unmarried in the guards. Um, it was... You know, you dream of that day for many, many years, you know, and you build it up that, you know, you know, you're going to be hugging and telling each other, you know, that you love them. That doesn't happen. That's not real. It's, it's such a hard thing to do is to meet your child. For me, it was extremely hard. Yet I was extremely grateful that I had the opportunity to meet him and to see him and to sit down with him and hold his hand. And yet there was that ache in my heart. What I had missed out on. What had his life been like, Magella? He he had you know he had had a good life. He had a good life, and you know he was he was away for a good few years, and um, 
he was he was quite content in his own life. You know what I mean? He was, and it's um, still though. No matter how how his life would have been, I wanted him to be a part of my life. I didn't want that separation. And at times I felt envious of his adopted mother, the fact that she had the opportunity that I didn't have. All of this. But one thing I will say to birth mothers that are going to actually see their children, and for me it helped when I did the birth mothers course in Bernardo as well. It was, um, there's so many of us together. We're all, and we're all behind each other and we'll all support each other. And it's to go there with no expectations and to go in there and that is your son. And that if circumstances were different, that son would have been in your arms. So get rid of the guilt. Don't have guilt. Don't have shame. Be true to who you are. This is what you brought into the world. And I love what I brought into the world. Last year, you said the relationship with David hadn't been that great, but you're hoping that it will improve. Is it? Is it a work in progress? Is that what it feels like? like? It's a work in progress now. It is, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm one of many birth mothers that are actually, you know, we do have complicated relationships, and it's it, it's hard for both parties. It's not, you know, it is very difficult for both parties because we're both strangers to each other, you know, and it's to be able to find, I suppose an even keel really that both of us can sit down without digging into the past and without me as a birth mother feeling guilty and him not feeling that and him feeling the love for his parents and you know the guilt then he might feel because he he might like me and you know there's so much to adoption there's so much there and I'm so grateful to his adoptive parents for doing the job that they did. Magella, to me and to so many people, you are a hero in this country because the only way anything changes in this country is when people are brave enough to speak about the injustices and the terrible things that have happened to them, which you have done so amazingly. Um, like It's interesting that you went to Temple Moor with that sense of, I'm going to be someone who's going to change things. And in a even though it's very roundabout way and many, many years have passed, that is actually what you've done. You are a hero. You are someone who has changed this country, who has shone a light on something that was hidden and is going to change the lives of women in the Gardaí and women in Ireland for the better. So I'd just like to say thank you, first of all. And I know many of our listeners will feel exactly the same. I hope you have that sense that you have done something extraordinary. Oh, I do. I, I, I really do. And I thank you for that as well, because I, I feel now that my voice has been heard and that, you know, it's that other women stand up, stand together. We are not alone anymore and we can all help each other. And it's been a wonderful, it has been a wonderful opportunity I've been given to tell this story. And I am so grateful that I have the strength to do it. Well, we're very grateful too. You sound like you're happy in your life now and the healing that's taken place even in the last couple of years is has been enormous. Well, it's, it's phenomenal. Like it's, it's just, I'm a different person. Like I'm, I suppose I'm the person, not even suppose I am the person that I always knew was in there, but I was so broken by circumstances in my life that I couldn't reveal that person. And now, now she's there and I'm going, wow, you know, this is something. There's a lot more to be heard of me yet. I'm not gone yet. Well, I can't wait. We're going to have you back on. And you, as I said, you're a hero. You're definitely a hero to the Women's Podcast. I'm so delighted to have you on. I know you haven't been well recently. And um, I just, you've been on my mind all the time ever since I first heard about your story. So we're very grateful and the best to look with everything. And we'll definitely have you back. And that was the magnificent Magella Moynihan there. Her book, which is well worth reading, is called A Guarded Life. I'm so glad she came on the podcast to talk to us. And I hope you enjoyed that and that it made you think uh, back to an Ireland that we hope is gone. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 